This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered. Today we're going to be sitting down with former Cy Young Award winner Barry Zito. We'll also talk to Assistant General Manager and Director of Player Personnel Billy Owens and the pitching coach for your Oakland Athletics, Scott Emerson, to see how his offseason is going. But Barry Zito, what a great A he was. Here is the left-hander. So we're going to have Barry Zito for about 25 minutes. It's not your regular interview because we're doing a series here on A's cast where we're going to go through the life of the players. We're going to talk about 2001, we're going to talk about 2002, uh, talk about them growing up. So how do we want to set this up? Yeah, so essentially this is a, just a build off of another year of a podcast we started last year called The Path where – we did uh, three of that three episodes. The first one was on Lou Trevino. Then we did Liam Hendricks, and uh, I finished with Mark Hanna, and we posted that right before the season started in 2020. So this is just building off of it. We wanted to honor the 2001 team because uh, it's 20 years later, and we're working on uh, Tim Hudson and Barry Zito right now, which is pretty cool. So it was cool that we got a chance to talk, catch up with Zito. So my plan for this is is we're gonna air the inter- you know air the interview. You get to know a lot about Barry outside of baseball and you know coming into his career. So we want to do it where it's pre career or pre baseball and then post career. So what he's doing now and what he did before and building up. It's so it's a like a it's not like the the path where we did on the players before is like you were building it to find our whole life story. This is like high school, college, major leagues after. So. And then we're picking guys from the 2001 team that we, you know, that we're able to track down and that are willing to, you know, to speak. And Barry was great, good enough to give us a lot of his time today. So we're, I'm looking forward to taking this and other parts of interviews with other people we talked to about Barry and putting it together for about a 30-minute podcast. We'll do, you know, sometime later this month. I got to tell you, the more we get to know him, he is really good people. Like Barry Zito is really a nice man and very humble. Um, very insightful, very emotional. I mean, the more you get to know Barry Zito, the more you like the person. And it's always interesting to watch guys. And that's where, you know, the A's, that's one thing Billy and David have been so good picking good people like Tim Hudson's good people. They, they pick good people. Eric Chavez, these guys are good guys. And they put those guys in their clubhouse and they win. So here is my conversation earlier today. It's a little bit of a different interview style, but here's my conversation with Barry Zito. All right, Barry, when, when, when you look back at baseball, when was the time that you first fell in love with this game? Uh, 
I mean, I, I knew I loved it when I was, I think six is when I first took the field. I ran out to the, to the center of the t-ball field, even though there was no pitcher, you know, in that, on that level, uh, for whatever reason, I just ran out to the little chalked out circle in the dirt and, you know, kind of from there, it was just a love affair with pitching. And, uh, I don't even think I was pitching until the next year when I got moved up, you know, past t-ball, but, um, I just always loved it ever since day one. You know, and, and looking back at your time, you know, you look at a legend down in San Diego, Randy Jones, who was obviously one of the greatest pitchers in Padres history uh, as a left-hander. What was it like working with Randy? Uh, Randy was such a character. You know, I think he won the Cy Young in 1976, and I remember always seeing that Cy Young on his wall when I would uh, – I started working with him when I was 12. But I always saw it on his wall when I'd go over there. And that, you know, it's just like a really cool plaque. And it was right there in his family room. And, uh, yeah, so I just never forget kind of going up there and always staring at that thing. And uh, I really just admired, you know, more of the person he was. I mean, he accomplished great things. But Randy's such a character. Everyone in San Diego knows, you know, being around the ballpark. And he had his barbecue out there. He just, the guy is just good vibes always. Oh, and, and, and a legit barbecue sauce, by the way. He sells it at the ballpark there at Petco. Uh, one of, by the way, Barry, one of the best barbecue sauces you can buy. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. He's a he's a master at that, and he's obviously been working a long time for it. You know, you, you think about relationships. You know, talk about your father and you in, in, in baseball, and and how that helped you come up through the game. Yeah, I mean, you know, baseball is a kind of a sport that you do share. Um, you know, I guess kind of like dad and son, you know, is kind of the visual that you have thrown in the backyard. Um, and so for me, my father had come off of being a very successful talent manager in Las Vegas, and we had moved to San Diego when I was six. And so, you know, there wasn't a lot of entertainment business uh, per se in San Diego. So he really just, you know, jumped right into helping me with baseball, almost like a talent manager would. And uh, he was very strategic in the way that he would kind of put me on different teams, you know, as I was coming up. And he, he was always adamant about putting me on a team uh, that was almost, you know, uh, higher than my skill level. Cause I was always, he, he said, you always have to dangle that carrot. And uh, so I was always motivated to, you know, be as good as the guys I was against. Cause he was always putting me in the higher you know, in the higher level. And I think that was a huge reason why, you know, I kind of climbed through the ranks because I wasn't always playing against competition that was, you know, easy to play against. That's actually really interesting, Barry, because, I mean, when you think about it, you know, most most kids, you want to be the best player on the team. You want to be able to dominate. And the fact that your dad always had you a little bit higher than what you should be, I love the idea of, dangling the carrot in front of you i mean really i mean you, you had to battle basically the entire time you played ball as a kid yeah absolutely and i think you know it's just that it's that concept of when you're uncomfortable you know you're probably getting better you're you're growing as a person when you're in an un uncomfortable environment you know you're you're getting stronger mentally physically uh whatever it is and so you know, these days, it seems like, you know, people don't like discomfort. They want to be comfortable. They want to be, you know, feel like everything is uh, predictable and okay. But a lot of times in those situations when we feel very secure and comfort, um, we're actually not really growing as a person much. So, um, and my father, you know, knew that and implemented that. So I, I still seek discomfort in, in most things. You know, I try to push myself out on the edge uh, and, you know, what is a, 
Malcolm Gladwell, you know, he talks about the 10,000 hours, but more importantly, you know, always operating right at the edge of your skill level. Um, and, you know, it's like that in music, too. If you're working with people that are better than you, then, you know, you're going to get better. But if you're working with people that, uh, you know, when you're always the best one in the room, then, it, it you know, you're probably not going to be growing much. You know, uh, I took my kids over the Thanksgiving break down to UCSB and because they, they wanted to see the campus. And, and the first thing I thought, Barry, was, you know, from my days playing at San Jose State and you, you and Santa Barbara was in our conference. I'm like, you can't go to school at the beach. I mean, it just, it's just uh, so you end up going from UCSB onto USC, which USC is a whole different animal, a whole different ball game. What was it like being a Trojan and truly playing at one of the best baseball programs in the country? Yeah, that was pretty special. I mean, I was a, you know, I was a beach kid growing up in San Diego. So going to Santa Barbara was such an easy transition for me. Uh, and it was one of only two schools that, that wanted me actually. So Santa Barbara, Wake Forest, um, were kind of the two main contenders because we couldn't afford school. Right. So I had to pick, and of course I picked California. Um, but going back down to USC, uh, after hitting a couple of junior colleges on the way, uh, it really was just a whole different, I mean, it was like, wow, look at this, you know, look at this campus, look at this program. I'd always watch the Trojans, you know, on TV. And of course the year before that, they won the world series in 98. So I was so excited to, you know, to wear the, the, uh, maroon and gold there. And, and, you know, we went pretty far that year. We didn't get to the world series, but we, we lost to Stanford, unfortunately. So all the barrier folks <laughs> were probably happy about that. You know, then I think about your time when you find when you finally get to the A's, it's a mixture. What a great clubhouse you guys had. You know, we're, we're looking a lot at 2001. Uh, I, I, we're always going to think of the big three. I mean, these guys are like your brothers, you know, Hudson Mulder and Zito. I mean, we remember the big three. Just what was that like as a young guy, as you talked about pushing yourself at the edge, these guys were constantly pushing you also. Yeah, they were, you know, and uh, I remember the first time I met Tim Hudson is, uh, you know, right when I came up to the A's and, um, you know, he was essentially, you know, kind of, I think he signed as a senior out of college, which was very crazy because he was so skilled and usually, you know, the super highly skilled guys are going out as juniors. So um, Tim was, uh, you know, kind of the guy that introduced his crazy split finger to the league and he'd been pitching there uh, for a few months um, when I met him. And, uh, and then the following year, you know, I got called up, but, but I had first met him in spring training of uh, what was it of 2000. And uh, you know, he had a few months in big league time under his belt. And of course I was in awe of him, right. Cause I saw him on TV and there's something so special about like seeing a guy on TV and then meeting him in the flesh. Uh, you know, and then a month after that Mulder got called up and then, you know, five months later I got called up in the summer of 2000 and, we weren't really aware that we were pushing each other per se. We were just kind of happy to be in the big leagues and, you know, kind of terrified every day, right. Of, of doing poorly. So I think in those early stages, you know, there's a lot of excitement and uh, you're not totally sure how you're viewing the whole situation, probably until, you know, the nerves settle after a year or two. Yeah. You had some really good players. I mean, we think of like, like Giambi and Tejada, what was it like coming up and, and being around these guys and, and what a special team 2001 was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 2001 was an incredible team. Um, I mean, we won a ton of games and, 
I think we came in second place that year, did we, with 102 wins somehow? Yeah. Um, yeah so uh, pretty special team. You know, uh, Johnny Damon was part of that team who I actually just reached out to on that Cameo app, which is kind of funny. I was like, Johnny, what's up, man? <laughs> I like paid him. I paid, his fee. I paid his fee and I was like, what's up, man? It's Zito. You know, just like, want to say what up? <laughs> and he sent me back a video. Oh, it was great. Um, but uh, Jermaine Dye, I mean, you know, 2001 was incredible, but we didn't really know different, you know, as young players. We were surrounded by so much talent. And of course, looking back, we're like, wow, that was a really special team. That was a special era in Oakland A's baseball. But as a player and you know, you just kind of come up right into that. You don't quite know the difference. You know, and you also think about God, that was the year I got married. And I, and I, and I think about, you know, the, the stoppage of nine 11 for you guys as players, what, what, what was that like? Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget that. I pitched the night before I pitched September 10th at against the, uh, against the Rangers. And I think I had a shutout going into the ninth. Uh, or, and, uh, I feel like I gave up an opposite field home run to, uh, gosh, what was his name? He went to Delaware. Anyway, sorry, going down the, uh, Oh, Kevin Mench. And, um, I can't believe I remember that, but the next day I remember waking up and ESPN was, you know, on the TV in my bedroom. Of course I was digging myself that night, right. Watching ESPN as I went to sleep. And, um, cause we did win. They gave, I gave up a homer, but we did win. And, um, yeah, that next morning, I remember turning on the TV and seeing the towers, you know, on fire, smoking on ESPN. And so when you're seeing like a world event on a sports channel, that's when you know, like, okay, something seriously wrong has happened. And I'll never forget going down. I lived in San Ramon at the time. I'll never forget going down the street to get gas that day in the afternoon and the silence of no airplanes, you know, flying into Oakland Airport was just eerie. What it what did it mean to you and, and let's just say your teammates to get back on the field and start playing again? You know, it was just odd, you know, take take some of that time um, off and kind of figure it out. I mean, we obviously stayed in shape, but um, everything got delayed. You know, we actually were playing against the Yankees that year and we went to New York and I got to have such a special experience to really touch and feel and and connect with what happened, you know, with the tragedy. And so me and a bunch of the players, we went down to a fire station um, and it was literally right across the street from where the towers were. And Giambi was there and Damon and, uh, and Huddy and myself. And we uh, hung out with the children of a lot of these firemen that had died in the towers. And, uh, and the Rudy Giuliani, who was the mayor at the time was there. And it was just, such a crazy experience to to kind of drive you know into that national guard kind of guarded you know military guarded area and to smell the smell of what was happening with the towers and it, you know it just made it so real and uh it really imprinted all of us for life that's an unbelievable experience it was pretty crazy man i still have pictures of you know we were climbing up the fire the the firehouse or what was it the uh, fire engine ladders with the kids and you know of course these kids didn't even know what happened right i mean they they a lot of them were very young and uh, they just knew that their fathers were not with them anymore and it's just just incredibly tragic man yeah and, and you know you go into 2002 and 
you know, you think about what what a great year for you, but you also think about that's the Moneyball year. You know, they ended up making a movie about this season. What was O2 like for you? O2 was kind of an extension of – I had a pretty good hot streak in the last couple months of O1, uh, and that's really a – that was a career-defining moment for me, 2001, because I was very – I was a very bad, a bad pitcher, really, for those first four months. I was six and seven. I had over a five ERA and had this huge, crazy turnaround. And um, and so 2002 was really an, of an extension of that turnaround where I just kind of stayed hot, so to speak. And um, so for me, man, I was just I was just on clouds, you know, going into spring training and riding it. But um, early on in that season, I remember I gave up six runs in the first inning in New York against the Yankees. And it was very embarrassing because one of the hits I gave up, Jorge Posada hit a ground ball and it literally like went right through my legs. Uh, it was so hard. I didn't even get a chance to try to field it. But, you know, I gave up six runs in the first and I, that lit some type of fire in me because from that game on, you know, um, I think I was one and two when that happened. And, you know, and from that game on, you know, what, what would have been 22 and 22 and three or something for the rest of the year. Right. So there was something mentally that clicked when that happened. I think I was so embarrassed. Right. And and I, New York was always my favorite place to pitch. And so, you know, the fact that I got so uh, humiliated in Yankee stadium, I think I got mad about that. You were 23 and five that year with a 2.75 ERA. It's pretty, I mean, it was an amazing season for you. Um, just what, what, what was that like where you're just winning every single game you go out and pitch, you pitch almost 230 innings. What was that season like for you? The season was, um, you know, it was just one of those experiences in life where everything's clicking. Um, you know, I, I didn't really have a lot of fear going out there to throw. I was more just excited and really felt like I was just going to go kick people's butts and have a good time. And, uh, that, that always taught me a lesson. I couldn't really ever replicate that domination, but the mindset of really going out to have fun and enjoying, like just hanging out with the guys. I mean, that's really where my head was. Um, you know, I wasn't sitting there going, Oh, I have to win this game. Cause you know, we're in the playoffs. It, it was all, um, it was just all, there was so much joy happening in my life and especially on the mound. And usually that translates to success. I mean, for, for me, it did. Um, that that was just such a fun season. You know, I remember reading the book Moneyball even before the movie came out. I remember going, wait a minute, Hudson Mulder and Zito, um, uh, Tahad is the MVP. I'm like, I love Scott Hatterberg. We all love Scott Hatterberg, but where where's Barry Zito and Moneyball? You won 23 games. They don't even bring you up. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, that, that wasn't, that wasn't, uh, the most attractive kind of part of that story, I think from a Hollywood perspective, right? Cause if you just tell a story and you're like, Oh, they had great pitching and they had the MVP and then they won, you know, people are like, duh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, to make that thing kind of a, a, you know, a box office kind of success, right. You gotta, you gotta focus on certain aspects of the story. And um, a lot of the things they focused on certainly did happen, but they're, you know, those guys had help, right? I mean, you gotta be, you gotta have pitching in the playoffs. That's ultimately what it comes down to, right? Well, and, and I think you guys won 20 games in a row. I right? just, just talk about that experience of winning that many games in a row, which at the time was the record and, and truly an amazing accomplishment. 
Yeah, I remember the last like five, six games of that thing, you know, were just some of these come come from behinds were incredible. And I think Huddy may have pitched one of these games against uh, the Royals and he he got into a pretty big hole. He'd given up a few, I want to say six, maybe seven runs. Uh, and somehow we fought out of that. I don't remember which game it was, but it was late in the streak. And uh, I remember standing around the food table at the end of the game and, you know, Huddy you know, we have the phrase, you spit the hook, right? When you, you're on the hook for a loss and then your team comes from behind and they, you know, they tie it back up or win and you spit that hook. And, you know, Huddy was making a joke how big that hook was. You almost couldn't get it out of his mouth, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I got to think, really, really one of the cool things about your career in the end was you and Huddy facing off. You're back with the A's. He's with the Giants. I'll never forget that game. I know you guys didn't love the outcome of the way you pitched, but just as, as such close friends to end your career like that, what was that like? Yeah, that was pretty special. It, it was certainly unexpected, uh, especially from my end. I mean, I, I had retired essentially in my own mind for nine or 10 days and uh, was, you know, starting to jump into music here in Nashville and made my last start in Omaha in a AAA park and uh, had a party thrown for me by my teammates and I was sailing off into the sunset. So. You know, getting that call from Billy Bean a week and a half later asking me to come pitch uh, was, you know, certainly a surprise. And uh, going up against Huddy in that game was incredible. Yeah, what, what, what was your relationship like with Billy Bean? Um, my relationship with Billy's always been great. I mean, we've, we've always um, connected. I mean, ever since he took a chance on me, you know, out of USC and taking a, a kid that throws 88 to 90, essentially, you know, with a, with a top 10 pick. I mean, I, I know he came under a lot of fire for that, um, a lot of heat. And so, you know, uh, I remember showing up and meeting Billy uh, right after I got drafted. And uh, really, ever since that day, we've just had a great relationship. And, you know, we still stay in touch now. And um, I'm always updating him as to things in my life and uh, reaching out and saying hello, you know. You know, take take me back to 2012. What 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 was that like for you to really get redemption, pitch so well? Whether we're talking about the playoffs or the World Series, and get your and, and get that World Series ring, that had to be really special for you. Yeah, 2012 was incredible for me. Just coming off of the 2010, a couple of years before, and being left off the roster, um, and then you know 2011, I was hurt you know, basically the whole year and then pitched out of the bullpen at the end of the year. So it, you know, it was looking pretty, uh, pretty dire for me as a giant at that point, certainly with the contract. Um, you know, so 2012 was just, it was such a gift, you know, and, and I, I, I honestly can't really take much credit from it. I think I was able to really let go of the, the fears, you know, of uh, pitching poorly, the fears of letting everybody down that I had pitched with for so long as a giant, because really I just wanted to do well. Um, but I didn't really have the ability to block it out as much as I would have hoped. And, um, so after a lot of pain and misery, you know, I kind of stopped pitching, uh, for myself and I, and I started to pitch more to glorify, you know, my maker and took, took a lot of pressure off me, to be honest. I, I, you know, my personal approval and my personal self-worth was not on the line as much, um, especially in 2012, I really was just trying to have fun out there. You know, I think about you being so cerebral, you know, where some guys just, you know, just pick up the ball or pick up the bat and, and do it. You're different than that. You really think through it. And th that's why, you know, when, when I think about your book, Curveball, 
How much did that help you? And I know Ace fans have loved it, by the way, Barry. They've actually loved the book. How much did that just help you, like a release, to 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 let all the emotion out? Because obviously you're a very emotional guy. Yeah, I mean, listen, I I will I will say that I don't think I'm more cerebral or emotional or whatever. I just think that I'm okay with experience with showing it, right? I'm okay with being a little more vulnerable, probably just because I grew up in a family of musicians and more creative types of folks, right? Um, I didn't have a father that was telling me to go out there and be strong and don't show weakness and, you know, all these things, right? That as children, we hear this and then that kind of shapes how we are the rest of our life. Um, hopefully not. Hopefully we can work through all of our, you know, all of our stuff from childhood. But, um, you know, for me, I just had a family that always embraced sensitivity, embraced you know, because we all feel these things, Chris, it's just people don't really, you know, admit to it. <laughs> so, um, you know, for me, vulnerability really is true strength and power. And, uh, you know, Brene Brown is a, as a speaker an incredible uh, author and, you know, her whole thing is vulnerability is, is, is power, um, kind of in the opposite way. And I believe that humility is also power. You know, when you're going out there trying to put off an air that you're in control or strong at some point, that paradigm is going to break and it's not going to be fun. And it did for me. So, you know, I, I, I would encourage people out there listening to, you know, not buy into the idea that uh, people that are strong and don't talk about their feelings are actually like, you know, the coolest ones. Uh, Cause those are the, usually the ones that are, you know, in the therapist seat most of their life, you know, for the last part of it. What was it like for you to put out the book and then now it's been, I, I, obviously it's been months since it, it's come out, but what was the whole experience? I mean, Barry, you're, you know, obviously great pitcher, musician, but now you're an author. What was that process like for you? For me, you know, I didn't really see myself as an author or like, I'm going to put a book out or whatever. I just wanted to just, I just wanted to tell my story. And, and essentially my goal was, we have a lot of preconceived notions about people we see on TV or people we see on, you know, sports fields, right? We can certainly assume what their life is like or how they're processing a certain thing or a moment or a, a World Series game or whatever. And I just wanted to shed a little light on that and really say, look, this is honestly what's happening um, in that person's mind in a position. And, and it's my mind, you know, but I, I think most players that have gone through things similar to what I've gone through have also dealt with these same things. But like I said before, not a lot of people expose these things. Not a lot of people are uh, going to shine the light, so to you know, so to speak, on these dark spots in their life. And so, I feel like the more transparent you can be with your baggage, then you know maybe you can teach some other people some things, or or maybe help somebody along that's having a hard time. And that was really my goal was, you know, if I can share the darkness that I went through, maybe maybe it helps somebody else that's in the dark, you know. You know, you're truly an, an inspiration. And I think about all the different players, uh, you know, throughout my career that I've dealt with and to, to see where you are at this point, it, it, it truly is remarkable. And, you know, we, we, we root for you. And I got to tell you, I mean, your transition, I think one of the coolest things is that your we'll end on this, is your transition into truly another career. Uh, you know, you know, a lot of guys they got they got to play golf, or maybe they just start a business or whatever. What has that been like for you, changing from baseball player to musician? What has that been like for you? 
Uh, it seems very natural for me, uh, just because my family, you know, I came from a family of musicians and I always had, you know, music in my mind, right? And I was playing guitar back in the baseball days. Um, so for me to really land in Nashville, that was like a little gift, you know, from the sky, like, oh, wow, okay, here we are living in Nashville. So that, this is a great town for this music stuff. Um, but it seemed very natural, you know, uh, but I do love the fact that I've gone into something where I got to be a beginner again. And I'm um, trying to, you know, work with people and I got to earn my credibility. And, you know, nobody's trying to hang out with me on a music front just because they're a baseball fan. Uh, you know, maybe that's happened a few times, but you can't continue to work with people unless you can, you know, bring the goods. And so um, it's nice to kind of start over and have the pressure on and uh, and really have to, you know, be a rookie again. You're always striving to get better. That's what's great. You're always striving to get better. And most people don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. I just, I just, I can't sit around and I, you know, I feel like the human spirit wants to create it, wants to keep moving forward. So I could never imagine like sitting around and, you know, playing golf every day. Now golf is a whole other thing, which I'm not familiar with, but you know, I think all of us as former players have to be challenged on a daily basis or else we're going to lose our mind or we're going to, you know, invest our energy into things that are not healthy for us or our families. Barry is good people. Always love catching up with him. How about Billy Owens? Billy Owens is one of the top talent evaluators in all of the game. That's why he keeps getting these interviews and is going to be a GM someday. I actually got to play against Billy Owens college when he was at Arizona. Of course, he's a Bay Area kid, went to Bellman Prep, uh, was a terrific football player, went to the University of Arizona to play football and baseball, and we're lucky to have him as an assistant GM. Here is Billy O. Billy O, it's always great to have you on. How are you in the Valley of the Sun? Johnny, what's up, man? Great. It's uh, 72 degrees and sunny, so I'm doing outstanding. You know, today you're a baseball historian, let alone assistant general manager and everything you've done in this game as a player. Uh, but you are a historian. I don't think there's anybody that really knows this game in and out better than you. And we lost a true legend today. We lost a guy that when you look at a Mount Rushmore of Major League Baseball players, Hank Aaron is up there, truly one of the great. I mean, we can talk about him off the field, what a gentleman, uh, the way he carried himself with such class and what he meant to the Braves organization, what he meant to baseball. And truly, when you just look at the body of the work, one of the greatest baseball players, if not the greatest, who has ever lived. Yeah, funny you said that, Townie. I mean, when you when you talk about Mount Rushmore of baseball, uh, Henry Lewis Aaron is firmly entrenched. No matter how you, um, however they um, they uh, crave the rockings up there, because I mean, you look at Henry Aaron's career. You're talking about a man that had 755 home runs, and you take away all 755 home runs from his docket. He still has over 3,000 hits. You're talking about a man that the one batting titles, gold gloves, a consistent base runner. And I go back to, you know, knowing the history of the game. Um, I read Maury Wills' book, I remember, like all the way back uh, about 20 years ago. And he really captured the 60s and his era. Uh, it was unbelievable. And when he talked about they'd have a meeting going over the hitters, you know, Frank Robinson, Cepeda, Willie Mays. And so Koufax and Drysdale, um, they would lead those meetings 
And when it came down to, to Hank Aaron, the room would get quiet. Uh, you couldn't hear a pin drop. And they would say um, there, there was no way to pitch him. So uh, when he hits his, just make sure nobody's on base. The thing that I always like to tell people, and it's the thing for me that sets him apart really from everybody else in the history of the game. Because you take steroids out of the game, he would still be number one in home runs. He is number one in RBIs. But what people don't really realize that only Pete Rose and Ty Cobb have more hits than him. We have never seen a combination of power and the ability to get hits like this guy. Billy Oh, he's third all-time in hits. That's crazy. Yeah, now Hank's third all-time in hits, and he's actually number one in extra base hits. And if you go back to the 60s, you know, the era where he really played the majority of his career, that was a pitching-dominated era. It was Koufax, Drysdale, Bob Gibson, Denny McClain, um, Juan Marichal, et cetera. And, I mean, that's, in 1968, they lowered the mound because pitching dominated. And so through that time, at all the grades that they, on the, in the batter's box, Clemente, uh, Frank Robinson, so on and so forth. I mean, all those guys will still tell you during that time, during that era, the consistency, the excellence. Uh, nobody could match uh, Henry Lewis Aaron. You know, Billy O, one of the reasons why I like expanded playoffs is we get more of the great players into the postseason. I think Henry Aaron is a great example. Ted Williams, Ernie Banks, you know, certain guys who had limited time in the postseason. I mean, you look at Hank Aaron in the postseason, he was an absolute monster. Played 57, 58, and then even at the age of 35, got in quickly with the Braves when they were in Atlanta in 1969 in 17 games. In the postseason, he had six home runs, 16 RBIs, hit 362, 1,116 OPS. He was an absolute monster. And, of course, his Braves took down the Yankees in 1957. Isn't this a great way to look at why we need expanded postseason so we can have more of the great players in the postseason more often? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if you look at it back then and not to – I mean, those guys were titans, uh, Ted Williams, Willie Mays. And so in their era, you know, the Yankees pretty much, you know, they, got, they made the World Series almost every year. But you had American League and you had National League and only one team from each side, whoever won the pennant, there was no other thing precluding the uh, – there was no playoffs back then. So either won the pennant and got to the World Series or um, – if you didn't win the pennant, you were going home. And so going back to 2020, you know, seeing the expanded playoffs, I mean, it was great in Oakland. You know, we got a chance. To, we won that. We won the division, won a playoff series this year. And then after, and after we bowed out, I honestly sat on my couch here and watched every single out of the postseason. You know, once I got over us not being in it anymore, the thrill, the excitement, I watched every out, man. It, it was I couldn't wait to, you know, take my afternoon walk or exercise. And when the playoff game started, to see the riveting drama, uh, the pitch by tw- pitch, 
the sequencing, the strategy, and all that tremendous talent. So, yeah, the more the merrier, man. I mean, it's um, we got the NFL Championship Sunday coming up, and I can't wait to, to, to see Tom Brady go toe-to-toe against Aaron Rodgers, uh, the Bills Mafia uh, lock up, hopefully, with Pat Mahomes. And so, yeah, it's um, when you get down to the nitty-gritty and uh, one side goes home and the other goes home for the championship, uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, this past weekend, as you're watching it, if people don't know, uh, Billy Owens was a hell of a quarterback at, at Bellarmine Prep and then went to the University of Arizona where he was both a football and baseball player. As a former quarterback, when you were watching that game between Tampa Bay and the New Orleans Saints, I know I was. I was like, these guys are in their 40s. Where Was there at any point where you were going, my God, I can't believe these guys are still playing at this level. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, it's, it's amazing what, you know, modern medicine and the proper diet and just, you know, being in 2021 now does. I mean, if you look at the clips of um, Jim Plunkett, George Blanda, uh, old school Bellarmine guy, Dan Pastorini, uh, yeah. you see those guys, Kenny Stabler, when they're approaching 35 with that football uh, uniform on compared to what Tom Brady and Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers is 37 years old, another Bay Area guy himself. And so you see what these guys look like and, and the caliber, the high caliber of play they still have. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, I mean, he broke the bank this year, man. I mean, I think he had close to 50 touchdowns, uh, less than 10 interceptions, and he's still a, a really good athlete. And, uh, you know, Tom Brady, Sarah High School, you know, rival of the old Bellman Prep back in the day. Uh, Tom Terrific still getting it done, man. He's got weapons. Uh, he's he, he's the true goat. But it's going to be a hell of a matchup because if Tom Brady ain't the goat, Aaron Rodgers is close behind. So getting back to Henry Aaron, I once read about in Mobile, Alabama, how he skipped school. His mom wasn't thrilled, but he skipped school to go watch a speech by Jackie Robinson. And I think about what Jackie set not only for baseball, for the country, and, you know, if you ever get to Kansas City, the Negro League Museum is just it's incredible. You got to go. But to think about what Henry Aaron went through in his career and to think about how Henry Aaron carried himself on the field, off the field. I got to interview him one time and you're like, you know, you're interviewing a legend. And he was, you know, he was just he was soft spoken and he was so, you know, he was just so. Uh, just the way he carried himself. It was just, you knew you were talking to greatness, but just talk about the way that it wasn't easy for Henry Aaron. It wasn't easy for Willie Mays. We all know about Larry Doby and Jackie Robinson, but even for, for that era of players, it was not easy for an African-American to, to be playing major league baseball, especially in the South. Yeah. No, I mean, you go back to it, you know, Henry Aaron grew up in Mobile, Alabama. He played for the Indianapolis clowns of the, um, Negro League for a season before he signed with the Braves. And, and he also, he actually integrated the South Atlantic League where he was MVP, you know, once upon a time before he got to the major leagues. And I'm a true historian, so I've been to Kansas City. I've been, been to the Negro League Museum. Uh, and, and it's uh, amazing to see Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, Henry Aaron, Amani uh, Irvin, Willie Mays, and just to see the legends of that, you know, what they did. And for Henry Aaron, 
to go through, you know, to hit that home run off Al Downing uh, for 7.15. And actually, uh, one of my pitching coaches, Jack Billingham, uh, actually gave up 7.14, and, and he had nothing but reverence for, for Henry Aaron. But, no, it wasn't easy. I mean, the 60s was a pitching-dominated era. And if you go back in time when he broke in with the Indianapolis Clowns of the Negro Leagues, then he integrated the South Atlantic League. I mean, this man, uh, for the class personified, he went through trials and tribulations. And you see it today. I mean, I was just looking at some clips before we got on. I mean, Steve Kerr gave a shout-out. Magic Johnson gave a shout-out. Stephen King gave a shout-out. Um, Deion Sanders gave a shout-out. So not only do you have greats like, you know, Dusty Baker, Chipper Jones, um, talking about in every major league team acknowledging what this man did. I mean, this guy transcends sports. I mean, you got people, Lenny Kravitz, came, he showed a picture today with um, wearing a Hank Aaron jersey when he was a, a, a teenager. So, yeah, Hank Aaron, I mean, you can't, you cannot overstate the impact that Henry Lewis Aaron made for um, our society. Uh, it's bigger than baseball. I love the quote where he said his entire career he looked breaking ball because nobody could get a fastball by him. <laughs> he hit off his front foot. He had such strong wrist. And you know what's crazy about it too, Billy O, is that he grew up playing cross-handed and it wasn't until some point in his career they switched him over, and obviously he still excelled. But can you imagine hitting a baseball going up there cross-handed? Now, it's still kind of funny if you just look at the landscape. He actually signed as an infielder. I mean, from a scouting standpoint, 101, I've always just emphasized that everybody, most guys, I mean, you play Little League, the best guy in the field is a pitcher, and he's a shortstop. And so – Hank Aaron spent the majority of his career in the outfield, but he signed as a shortstop. And then he played for the Milwaukee Braves when they won the, their their World Series in 1957. He was an infielder, you know, playing alongside uh, greats Warren Spahn. So, yeah, Henry Aaron, I mean, Bob Gibson and Koufax had a quote, and they basically said, I mean, he was so quick inside that they had nothing for him. I mean – so you got two greats from the 60s, uh, Bob Gibson of the 1.12 ERA and, and Sandy Koufax of the, um, of the six of the greatest years on the mound in our history. And, and they're, they're just poignant saying they had nothing to, to counterbalance and attack Henry Aaron because the man had no weakness or holes. Let's end on this. How much are you looking forward to and you can't wait for baseball to get back? Oh, I can't wait. I mean, that's the – unless you're the team that makes the – you know, holds the trophy for the last out of the World Series, I love it. I love the excitement. and I watch all the interviews, but it's still bittersweet after that last game of the World Series because, you know, there's no more baseball. You can go down to Winter League, go to Caribbean. You have the hot stove, but it's, you know, spring training is, is almost upon us. Um, the excitement of the season is here. Uh, you're hoping that, you know, we, we make the postseason again. So, no, it's, it's our livelihood, uh, what makes us tick every day, uh, reading those box scores first thing in the morning, 
Um, I can't wait for um, for baseball season to, to, to get here. It can't get here soon enough. And rest in peace to the man, the legend, Henry Lewis Aaron. Thank you. Milio, you are the best. Be safe down there in Arizona, and hopefully we'll see you at spring training. Sounds good, Tony. Take care, man. That's my guy, Billy Owens. I love that guy. He's such a cool dude. And then, of course, Scott Emerson. Whenever we have the A's pitching coach on, you learn something. What are the A's doing in the offseason with their pitchers? How e- how's Emo doing with the family there in the Carolinas? Here is Scott Emerson. Emo, how are you? How's the offseason going for you? Man, everything's going great. You know, can't complain. Uh, just re- really anxious to uh, get back on the field and get back to work. You know, as seeing you on Twitter, I mean, you're 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 becoming like a media star these days. Uh, no, I don't know about that. It's just you know, I've I've done some uh, little pitching seminars here and there for people that I know, and and uh, you know, I, as you know, I love talking pitching. And uh, I love talking pitching with people I respect. And uh, I guess sometimes there's a quote out there every now and then, I guess. Well, as you like to say, hitting is timing and pitching is disrupting that timing. And and you talked about it in that seminar. You know, it, 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 it doesn't change. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, what these guys need to be working on. Not everybody needs to just be sitting there thinking about how can I throw 100 miles an hour. You got to figure out how to get people out. Exactly. You know, a hundred miles an hour and the velocity will always get you, get you seen, get you looked at, get you in the door. That's why there's a, the, the catch 22 because everybody's looking for velocity, but sometimes, you know, and, and probably more times than not, when you get a young pitcher with really high velocity, you got to tone him down to get him to become that major league pitcher. You know, I've always talked about, uh, you know, we want uh, major league pitchers, not minor league throwers. And, you know, guys that uh, you come in with great arms and uh, off the backstop just aren't aren't conducive for major league pitching. So, you know, at some point in time, everybody's going to have to learn to how to pitch, no matter what velocity they have. Because if you just can't, if you can't throw strikes, you're not going to play for anybody, right? So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, how you can make your strikes uh, up, uh, look good in the strike zone. How you can get swings outside the strike zone. And the velocity part will help you, uh, you know, margin of error wise, you know, you can miss a little bit more uh, and have a little bit more velocity than the guy throwing, you know, 92, 93, he throws it down the middle compared to the guy throwing a hundred down the middle. But then if a, if a hitter knows the fastball's coming in the big leagues, they don't care how hard it is. Yeah. That's something you, you know, watching that clip, and you, you, you talking about these throwing programs, you know, there's, there's all, you know, there's, they're all over the place now and it's all about trying to throw harder. Uh, the only problem is, you know, the, we're starting to see more Tommy John surgeries too. So it's kind of scary. Well, you, you know, that's what, you know, like I said earlier, the catch 22, if you, if you take the, uh, the long distance drive champions that, that are on the golf course, you know, at one time they were playing golf and they just, you know, couldn't make the PGA tour or any tour because they just can't score. They can't put up results, but they can hit the golf ball, you know, 400 yards. So what happened is they became long distance drive champions. And you just want to make sure that these uh, pitchers that come up throwing hard, don't 
have that as their only tool. You know, uh, velocity is great. We all love it. But the ability to pitch with velocity is what you need. Well, you, you know, probably the craziest thing that we've seen recently is, you know, when, when Blake Trinan had his great year, is to have the velocity with movement. That's, that's the one thing that you just uh, – it just amazes me. If you can throw the ball 100 miles an hour – and you can sink it at the same time. It's just a, it's a deadly combination. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I always talk about elements of pitching, location, movement, change of speed, effort level, and velocity. That never changes. You know, hopefully you can have two of the first three, uh, which is location and change of speed or location and movement. You know, the velocity is what you, what you have. You know, you can only pitch with what you have velocity-wise but you can only command the baseball to a certain degree too. You know, some guys get out there, they throw it 97 to hundred and have no idea where it's going. And you tone them down to 94, 95, and then tell them, you know what, when you're ahead of the count, maybe grease one a little bit more, throw this one a little bit harder. And then you can throw your sinker a little bit softer. And that's a change of speeds and that's mixing up timing. Yeah. You know, and you think about grip pressure, you know, how much of that changes and, and what players really need to work on in the offseason. How much do you talk about grip with your pitchers and, and what they should be working on in the offseason? Well, you know, not only grip, but, you know, hand action. You know, uh, how am I slicing the ball, my spin access on my pitches? Am I creating gyro spin on a breaking ball? Uh, am I staying uh, behind my fastball? You know, for me, uh, the pressure points were always really tough on the fastball, but really, uh, really good on your breaking ball. You know, how much pressure can you lay down on the ball on your middle finger to help create some spin? But, you know, we, we go out there. Uh, it, it's really tough in the offseason because you're not physically putting your eyes on these guys. Uh, you know, that's why early spring training is always important. You know, I felt last year. You know, we were getting to the point where we were going to rock and roll with a lot of stuff during spring training. And then we got sent home and then we get back and it's summer camp and you only have, you know, the three weeks to get ready for the season. So how quick can you start doing things with guys? And then once you get into the season, you know, sometimes it's tough to experiment with guys during the season uh, when they're trying to make pitches and get outs because you don't want to, to alter something to get it worse. But, um, you know, our guys are, are fairly smart and confident and educated. We had a lot of veterans last year. They understood uh, what to do with their baseball. And, uh, you know, last year, I think, you know, we threw the ball fairly well. And now it's, you know, this spring training. I'm, I'm really hoping that we get a full camp to where we can get some things and a little bit more things done. So when you look at starters versus relievers in the offseason, how much different is the program uh, but, but between the two? Well, uh, the, the, the difference is, is in probably the number of pros, uh, starters and relievers are going to make during the bullpen sessions. This week actually was the first week uh, uh, our guys should be throwing bullpens. Uh, they've given an off-season program that is blended with strength and conditioning and arm care. And so when they show up, they'll have 10 bullpens under their belt and then uh, they'll get two bullpens during uh, spring training. 
at which, you know, the starters will generally throw a few more pitches than the relievers. But a lot of it is individual based. You know, once once you get face to face in spring training about how many bullets you want to throw and then we'll talk to the relievers. How often do you want to throw in spring training? Uh, I like relievers every now and then to, to throw a bullpen during spring training. So some guys might throw a bullpen, have uh, two days off, throw a batting practice, and then have three days off until their game starts. But uh, in between those three days, they might get off the bullpen mound and get some work done. So, you know, a lot of it's talking to each individual, forming our own individualized game plan with each pitcher going into uh, spring training and uh, the start of spring training. When do you like guys to start throwing to get ready for spring training? Man, my dog, he's really making a a presence on the show today. (laughs) Got a lot of people going by the house. He always wants to be on the show. He always loves it. Uh, No, you know, we have a 10-week throwing program that we set out. You know, and I'm all right with our guys playing what I call backyard catch, even even during the off season. You know, you want to get out there and move the arm around and play catch. You know, catch is good for you, in my opinion. Um, pitching year round isn't good for you. You know, getting out there and pitching in games uh, year round is is, in my opinion, you know, harmful. But getting out and playing catch and throwing the baseball is very good for you. So. I don't mind when our guys really start throwing, but we do have a 10-week scriptured program, uh, script program for our guys with 10 bullpens uh, leading into spring training. Do you think that's kind of the problem with, with, with young pitchers today is the fact that, you know, back in the day we would, we'd play football, we'd play basketball, then we'd play baseball, and now it seems like these kids play year-round, so if you're a pitcher – you're pitching year-round. Is, is that a problem? Yeah, I, I think that's a problem. You know, the one thing that I, I, I don't like is the, um, you know, you're, you're pitching your high school season. You take three weeks off for summer ball. How many of those guys are staying in their throwing program, in their mound progression program, and, and building up to summer ball? And then you take three weeks off and you build yourself up into to, to fall ball. You know, some kids think, okay, I'm going to play my high school season and then I'm going to take three weeks off. And then all of a sudden I got a game in summer ball. You know, it's, you know, our guys, you know, take um, three days off at the most for the all-star break because on the fourth day we work out. So, um, or actually, we actually work out either on the fourth day or on the first day. We, we, we go through a little bit PFP when we get back. But our guys like to play catch during the All-Star break, most of them. So they're still playing catch, and it's only four days. So some of these kids taking three, four weeks off in between seasons and restarting and stopping, you know, I, I don't like to start and stop. Uh, if, they, if they, you know, pitch in high school and for three weeks they continue to throw a bullpen, once or twice a week and play catch, that's great. But uh, I think the downtime uh, of resting and then, and then coming back for another season and then resting and coming back for another season. So, you know, I would just rather have these guys throw from, from January to September and be done with it. And we're at a point right now that we still don't even know what the roster size is going to be, correct? 
Well, you know, I, you're correct. I'm assuming, you know, uh, if we start on time, uh, that, you know, we're going to have 26 guys. And I'm sure uh, if the minor leagues don't start on time, we'll, we'll carry a, a taxi squad type thing again. But like you said, I, I really don't know. I haven't been notified of, of any of that stuff. So, uh, but I'm assuming the, the season's going to be, you know, on time. We're going to have 26 guys, uh, which you can have 13 up to 13 pitchers, and then we'll go from there. You know, I remember like two years ago talking to David Forrest and Billy Bean to where, like, you you, you didn't know who your starting five was going to be. Like, you just had to you, you had to go find starting pitching. Going into this season, 2021, you just won the the American League West. How excited are you? The fact that. You know, you got your five, six guys. You know who who your starters are going to be. How how is that for you as a pitching coach? Well, it's always good because, you know, you you sit back and you look, you know, uh, Sean Manaya has been with us a long time now, and and so I've been with him a long time. Chris Bassett, since he came to the organization in 15, we've been together. So, you know, it's a sustainable unit. The the more you guys can can be together – the more the trust really starts to show up and, and then you can really dig in. You know, I, I, I want our pitching staff, all our guys, starters and relievers to realize that, you know, I'm there for them. And, and uh, sometimes, you, you know, as a coach, you don't know how much information each guy wants unless they come to you. So sometimes, you know, building that relationship, you can't go in day one and see a new pitcher and immediately attack him in something that you believe in, but he doesn't believe in, you know, so you got to form that relationship. And that's kind of what I do in the off season with the guys that I don't know is I'm texting them and trying to get to know them and ask them if that, what they need from me. And uh, because it's always easier for the coach to make adjustments to the player than the whole pitching staff to make adjustments to the coach. You know, I think I've always talked to you that, that like, I, I you know, I, I work for the Oakland Athletics organization, but I also work with the players uh, to, to work together to get them to be the best pitcher they can possibly be. It's like I'm a drop down in their, in their, in their, their menu on the computer. Okay, there's Emo right there. What can he offer me? And that's, that's ultimately, you know, how you build a relationship with your players. So the longer you have the players, and especially the starting guys that, that we uh, are hoping are going to be our starters, we've been around each other such a long time that we, we can talk open, open door policy. And, you know, I, I, asked them, I asked the guys, you know, tell me what you need me to do. What do I need to do? Or what do I, you think we need to change? And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's the decisions of myself and the organization on the policies that are set in place. But I want to hear what they got to say. You know, so I think I think that the, the uh, you know, at the end of the day, when you're together with each other uh, and, and, you know, Bassett is is coming into his own. Uh, Frankie Montas is coming in to his own. Uh, Manaya is cool, calm, collected, and steady. So, you know, and, and Jesus has got 
unbelievable confidence and, and, and electric stuff and puck to the two guys that could be really good left-handed pitching. So it's, it's exciting times, but like I always say, you know, you got to go out there and compete, but that's the one thing I love about our guys. They go out and compete. You know, technology is great. You know, whether we're talking track, man, Hawkeye, rap soda, whatever, is there ever a time where you need to tell one of your guys, just go out and pitch, stop worrying so much about spin rates and, you know, because people get so wrapped up in the technology and the data. Is there ever that time where, where you need to like, let, let's slow this down? Uh, yeah, all the time. You know, uh, there's a good quote about technology that I saw one day. It says, good coaches with no data are good coaches. Good coaches with data and an understanding how to apply it become great coaches. Technology doesn't replace coaches. It enhances their abilities to maximize their time. So, you know, if you think about the history of baseball, all the data has always been out there, right? We just never had anything to, to, to quantify it or to show somebody. I mean, we've always had spin rate. We've always had gyro spin. We've always had launch angle. We've always had exit velo. We just didn't have the technology to quantify it. Now we got the technology to quantify it. The players make the, the uh, numbers. The numbers, it's hard for the numbers to make the player, meaning, you know, okay, this guy's, uh, you want him to have 2,800 RPM spin rate on his fastball, but he's got 2,100. It's very hard to gain a lot of spin on your fastball without throwing harder. So, you know, the players actually, you know, put up the analytics and they put up the numbers. So you have to understand what's good data, what, what uh, each player can understand. Uh, you know, there, there's gyro degrees in the baseball. Most people aren't going to know what the heck gyro degrees are. You know, most people don't know what gyro spin is. So, and most people don't know what spin access is, a horizontal break or how it's measured. I mean, there is so much to technology now, and there's so many different uh, things that the radar systems uh, pick up. You want to use what you think is useful, you know, and I, I have a category of stuff that I think is useful. And a category of stuff that's just so beyond um, uh, an intelligent conversation with with the average person that some of it is just way over your head. Yeah, it's kind of like my golf game. The more I think, the worse I get. Well, you know, when, when you're the one thing, too, that since we can quantify uh, the numbers with technology is everybody wants to get better and better, which is, which is great. Uh, but sometimes it's really hard to take a A plus student, where you're going to go from there. And then sometimes the C students, a C student for a reason, you know, <laughs> and, and it's just hard to get the C student up to be an A student because he just doesn't have the aptitude uh, to understand what he needs to do to take it to the ultimate level. And, and then, you know, when you're, when you're developing, you know, the, the biggest new term for me that, that I, 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 I think is funny, it, it's called pitch design. 
you know, all these guys out there are talking about pitch design and how can we get design a pitch? Well, we've been doing that since baseball started, right? It's called getting your pitches better. So you don't really know how good a pitch is until he faces hitters. You can get him in on the mound. You can have a 2,800 spin rate curveball that's really nasty. But if the hitter can track it and he can see it, then it's not as good as we thought it would be. On paper, it's good. The spin and the break numbers are good. But maybe there's something in the delivery that the pitcher does that enables the hitter to see the ball longer. And then you're wondering, why is this breaking ball not very good? And the attributes of the, you know, the, the, the hitters are telling you it's either good or it's bad. They either swing and miss or hit it hard or they take it. I mean, that's what hitters do. So you have to analyze, okay, why is this breaking ball on paper really good? The numbers show up, it spins and it bites, but why can't he create swing and miss? A lot of times he's in bad counts and a lot of times he overexposes his delivery. He flies off the baseball and the hitters see it longer. So therefore that pitch isn't that good because at the end of the day, the results always tell you how good something is, right? So when something, you know, appears to be good on paper, but is not good in results, you got to figure out why. Well, the best pitch in baseball, isn't it still just strike one? It, well, you know, uh, first pitch strikes in Major League Baseball generally change between 58 and 59% of the time. So they're, they're very important. But winning, winning uh, two out of three is ultimate goal. Uh, the last time I checked the numbers, so, you, you know, don't quote me on this, but um, the best two-strike count was 3-2, and the batting average was 219, and all other two-strike counts, the batting average was less than 200. So at the end of the day, pitchers want to try to get the two strikes. So winning that 1-1 count and gaining the advantage is, is, is unbelievable. But it's probably always easier to throw a first pitch strike and guarantee you can probably throw one of the next two for a strike. If you throw a first pitch ball, you got to come back with two straight strikes. So, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, how many, how many, uh, what you see, you know, um, first pitch ball and play out batting average at one time. Uh, the last time I checked was uh, 339 but only 8% of first pitch balls are put in play. So 92% of the time, your pitch is either a ball, a called strike, or a foul ball. And then that other 8% are put in play where the batting average is roughly, you know, three thirties are, are in that range. So, you know, getting after first pitch is, is a good idea, in my opinion, because uh, nothing really bad is going to happen to you 92% of the time. Well, Emo, you know what we used to say in college, speaking of the C student, uh, C's get degrees, my friend. Hey, you, you know, you know uh, and, and I love it. You know, just get that piece of, get that piece of paper. Um, but, you, you know, you, you look at those, those, uh, you know, C guys, we don't want, we don't, you don't want to be a C guy, Townie. You, you don't want to be average. You want to be better than that, right? <laughs> Every day. I'm striving every day to be better. 
Well, I, I hope so, you know. And 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 you're you're great to listen to. You know, well, that's I, the that's the beauty of sports too, is that and, and coaching. You know, I mean, a lot of my day is consumed of of reading about new technology, reading about new statistics, watching our guys pitch. Uh, uh, you know, getting creative ideas of of something new and keeping the game and keeping it fresh. You know, I, I hate this. I hate the term now, old school versus new school, uh, because um, you know it's like conventional or unconventional. You're you're you're, you're labeling young guys as uh, new school. You label old guys as old school. You label young guys as non-conventional and the older guys as conventional. But, you know, when, when you love what you do and you have passion for what you do, there's no such thing as old school, new school. You're gaining all the information and you're evolving. You know, that's, you know, I learned this word long ago from former aid pitching coach and pitching coordinator Ron Romanek. It's evolving. We have to evolve. And the evolving part is learning everything, whether it's good, whether you got one company or one technology or one guru, you know, you like to learn them all and listen to them all and formulate your own opinions. And that's how, you know, I feel like I grow as a coach is, is I know what, you know, the, the velocity people love, which I love velocity too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but you got to be able to be major league pitchers. And, you know, from the arm care, I love looking at it to the velocity building to, to how to pitch, you know, and, and, you know, right now we got a lot of uh, young kids uh, becoming throwers, quite frankly, instead of learning how to pitch, they just go out there uh, in a showcase, they see uh, 50 radar guns go up and these kids want, want to sign for big money. So they're going to rear back and let it eat and throw it as hard as they can. And then when I look at these deliveries, I'm always thinking to myself, okay, is this guy sustainable? Where is he? Where would I put this kid's delivery in a game? Is he uh, the fifth inning guy? Is he a starter? Is he a closer? Because if you're one nine to the plate trying to create velocity, the skipper is going to be looking at you like, what the heck is going on? This guy's going to steal second base. This isn't helping us. So some of these velocity building programs, you know, lift it up, get it going, throw the piss out of it. But in reality, that's not pitching delivery. You know, you're, you're, you can't hold runners. And in the big leagues, if you're over one four five one five, it gets into where you could give away bases. And giving away bases could be giving away runs. Giving away runs are giving away wins. Giving away wins are giving away your opportunity to make the playoffs. So that's why those little intangibles always have to show up with pitchers. Is your delivery good enough, sustainable enough to hold runners? Uh, if you fall off the mound so bad and you can't field a bunt, you know, that's a problem. So we don't, you know, these velocity builders or some of these delivery guys don't take that into account that there's, there's other parts of the game that have to happen to, to make yourself a good pitcher. You give me a guy who's 94, 95, that can field his position and hold runners and throw strikes and change speed, or a guy that throws 100 who's got no clue about anything else. 
I'll take the guy throwing 93 to 95. On your way out, you going Alabama or Ohio State tonight? Man, I'll tell you what. Phil Pohl, our bullpen catcher, went to Clemson. I felt so bad for him, but I didn't have a great vibe going into that game for Clemson against Ohio State. And then in the first quarter, I was like, man, Ohio State, they, they can run. And speed kills. Because, you know, these big-time football programs, in my opinion, already are strong. But do they have the speed? Love Notre Dame. And I'm not the greatest football guy, but I always loved Notre Dame. But I watched Notre Dame, and they're big and strong, but they're not as fast. I don't. Well, I don't think. You know, somebody can tell me I'm wrong, but that's fine. I don't think they're as fast as those other three teams. But tonight's game, you know, Alabama's fast. Ohio State's fast. Um, I, I think it's going to be a good game, but it's always hard to go against Coach Saban. Uh, it's like betting against Tiger Woods. I, I'll take Tiger Woods one-on-one -on -one against anybody every time. So. You're gonna win a lot of money doing that too. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm. I think I'm rambling here just to to think of who would I would go with. Uh, I'll I'll take um, whoever you're not taking. Uh, I I I can't bet against Alabama. Yeah, I hear you. It's a tough one. Right. I mean, like you said, like betting against Tiger Woods back in the day, you're not winning. So I yeah, I think. Uh, there's a reason why they win all those titles and why Nick Saban's going to go down as the greatest college football coach is he just wins the big ones, and uh, that's the way it's going to be. All right, hey, buddy, great stuff. Let's uh, let's hook up again before spring training. Sounds good, guys. Well, we'd like to thank Barry Zito, Billy Owens, and Scott Emerson for joining us on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.